Welcome to my podcast for History of Mass Communication. Today we're going to be talking about the media and the racism and about whether racism in national media is more prevalent than it is in local media. Strictly than, well, mostly the news has always been biased in some way. Or whether it's a bias towards, you know, the left side, the Democrats, or the right side, the Republicans. It's there. It's always there. And the two entities, local and national, are alike in a lot of ways. But there is one glaring difference between the both of them, and it's that national media is more racist than the local media and i don't have an interview but i do have some 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 excerpts of news reports on various events or recently mostly just to kind of help prove the point i'm trying to make i have some other interesting articles I read and so that should be fun let's get that into it well let's start off with what we talked about in class over the semester the media from I mean obviously the original media was the news paper because we didn't have TVs or the fancy tw- tw- Twitters or the computers that we have today. So it was made inherently for white for for whites, not just whites, white males. We talked about access, you know. Blacks did not have the access to the newspaper, the, the newspaper, and it wasn't just blacks; it was any per any person of color. And women of any race didn't have access either; they couldn't get their their message out. And then we had Samuel Cornish and John Russworm start the black press, which. Right there, that's an example of our of our racism in the media. The black press was started because the makers of the real press were were racist and did not let anybody besides white males touch anything. While doing my research, I came across this piece uh, written by Brady Warmbine of the the Ailey Kent Stater. It's an on-campus on-campus journalism piece at Kent State. And it's an opinion piece, sure. It's a he states that 
Media outlets, specifically Fox News, only present information for, from a white male p political lens. And I think that's very true, especially for Fox. And I have an excerpt here uh, when Fox did an interview with Glenn Beck about the, the Derek Chauvin ver verdict. Let's, t let's take a listen. But right. we, we have to try individuals and not... Uh, movements. This verdict does not bring George Floyd back to his family. This takes another man who got up one day and wasn't thinking, I'm going to kill somebody, way away from his family, perhaps for the rest of his life. And we're looking at a system where justice should be blind. I hope it was in this case. It shouldn't be about color. It shouldn't be about wealth or station. It's blind justice, not social justice. That was Glenn Beck on Tucker Carlson after the verdict of Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. And I picked it because there's a couple things that stood out to me. Beck, he phrased that as... There's a man who didn't intend on killing somebody, so he shouldn't be punished. It's okay. And then he said, the, the system should, should be blind. It should not be about, about color or anything else like that. And Glenn, and Glenn is right, but it... But it always has been about color, and it always has been about race. And and saying that on national outlets just kind of perpetuates the 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 racist connotation that people already have about the media. And I don't think it did any fit. Any fa any fa any favors to Glenn Beck or to the whole situation because it's just another white man who is downplaying the racism in the media and the and the and the racism in the in the world. And now here is a clip from WCCO in Minnesota about the same thing, about George Floyd, his death, and the protests. We've heard of a lot of emotional people out here today, chance of, I can't breathe, chance of, it could have been me, what if it was me, and of course, no justice, no peace, but one thing people have been preaching here is to stay peaceful, on top of that, to stay socially distant, to wear masks. I think what also stands out about the size of this crowd is in the age of COVID-19, in the midst of this pandemic, for so many people to show up in support of George Floyd and the situation that's going on here amidst everything that's happening with the pandemic, I think speaks volumes about the incident that happened here yesterday and how people feel about it. Now, of course, the situations are different. The, the, the local report is, is, is after the incident just, just, just happened. And the Fox News one is, you know, right before, is after the verdict. But I, but 
You can tell at the difference there, right? One of them is 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 talking about what's happening behind him, what's going on, not letting his agendas in the way or his biases in the way. He he he, he didn't have any. And he's saying, like, it's a very powerful image to have everybody sh sh show up for something like this and not making it a political war or anything like that. Moving on to the racism in, in the media, it wasn't just newspapers. It spread to entertainment venues, too, you know. Uh... With you know, cartoons, early cartoons, minstrel shows where white people would put on blackface and perform in these circus shows, and that's also a form of. I mean, obviously, that's a form of racism because, but it was socially acceptable at the time. That doesn't mean it was okay, but these things that were happening on a national level. <laughs> These cartoons were distributed everywhere and the and the shows like like traveled to different places like a circus does and it's just it's just amazing how this uh, it was allowed it was allowed at certain points in at certain points in history. Racism in the media stems from this idea of systemic racism. It's embedded. It's embedded in our society. The idea states that every white person, or or either explicitly or 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 racist or or not, is a participant in American uh, oppression. Lee Siegel of the City J J J Journal says that it, systemic or racism or Ellie sh showed up during the, uh, the, the Me Too move, movement <clears throat> as a lot of the 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 offenders were prominent white male figures, and these fi these figures were in in positions of power from from Hollywood to being national news people, and and that's an, that's another example of systemic racism overtaking the national media because it's white people who think they can get away with everything and most of them did the only one i can recall who got punished for it was harvey weinstein I bring up the I bring up the, the Me Too because it happened on a national level, and you never really saw anything locally, at least in Omaha, about 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 you know 
Me Too or anyone being exposed or anything like that. So I think that's another aspect of national versus local and how much the racism plays into that as to how white men can get uh, can get away with a lot of other stuff that maybe certain people can't speak speaking of white men getting away with stuff racism on a national and on a national level was highly prevalent in the Kyle Ettenhouse case I happen to have another excerpt uh, of an of a news clip uh, this time. It's from Tucker Carlson, who had him on his show after his verdict came down. Let's take a listen. The picture that emerges is of a working class kid who sincerely believes in America. His community falls apart, and he tries his best to do the right thing at a time when almost nobody else in the community is trying to do the right thing, but he does. And in return for that, the state, under political pressure, throws him in prison. Then the people who swear they will help him take advantage of him. Well, that's pretty damning, isn't it? I suppose Tucker Carlson is low-hanging is low fruit on the, on the whole racist thing, but it's another example of systemic racism in the media perpetuating things like this. Or Tucker talks about people taking advantage of Kyle as like he was an ignorant kid who didn't know what he was doing. He drove hours to protests in Kenosha armed, and he shot three people and killed two. If you are going to a place where unrest is happening and you're armed, you're not looking to keep to keep the peace. You're not a you're not a middle class working kid. He was looking to cause trouble. And he did, and somehow he's being hailed as a as a hero for it by certain people. Today, our Andrea Albers is following the developments in court, and she's in our newsroom now with what we've heard so far in the early testimony from Gabe Grosskreutz. Gage Grosskreutz began his testimony by detailing the training that he'd completed to serve as an EMT and paramedic and told the court he'd been at many demonstrations that summer serving as a medic in Kenosha. On the night of August 25, 2020, Grosskreutz was streaming live on Facebook. He testified that he heard gunshots, then saw people running and yelling for a medic. And as you'll see in this video, that's when he came across Kyle Rittenhouse. The court continued to watch clips of the live stream video, which a short time later, showed Rittenhouse shoot Anthony Huber, then turn the AR-15 on Grosskreutz, who can be seen holding his hands up. Seconds later, he is shot. Grosskreutz testified that he thought he was going to die and believed the best way to avoid death was to try and wrestle the weapon away from Rittenhouse. And you know, again, a, a local report out of Milwaukee, just, it's, they're telling what happened. They're telling the story of 
the man who testified there and they're not the reporter is not the the reporter is not using her 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 her, 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 her own words she's saying he, 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 he testified grosskreutz said they're not letting the local reporters tend to not let their biases in the way of things. And I can speak from personal experiences. As I work at a local TV station, uh, KETV in Omaha, our goal, our goal with every story is to tell both sides, regardless of what the story is. That's what news is. It's telling a story. It's not slanting things to one side. The national media knows its audience, and they know what the audience will click on on the internet or or tune into, and so so they. Example, Fox News is Republican, so they'll talk about Republican things from a Republican point of view. C CNN is liberal, so they'll do the same thing, just for, just for liberalism. And I think that's a the big reason as to whether racism comes out in a lot of reporting on the, on a national level. It could be subconsciously. It it could be, but but it's still there, and because again, they know what people want to see. Knowing what people want to see has always been a part of the media. I mean, the, the early newspapers spoke about sl 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 the slavery and war because it people wanted to hear. It's what people wanted to know about. In order to sell, you have to make it interesting. And and it stems to today where, where, where modern outlets will talk about politics, left or right, because it's what people are interested in. One aspect that isn't talked about a lot is the phrase black lives matter according to Brumhill meta of 538 from 2015 to 2019 police shot over 1000 people according to 538's analysis that's a that's a, a, a data website that, that does a bunch of surveys and collects odds and probability and things. The phrase Black Lives Matter appeared less than half as frequently on cable news or online articles between 2017 and 2019 than it did from The current political climate is having some newsrooms change how they operate. According to Brian McNeil of v v VCU News, 
he did a piece uh, on the exact subject of how the BLM is is causing newsrooms are change how they operate. And he talks to a, a, a columnist at the Richmond Times Dispatch. The columnist said newsrooms are examining with fresh eyes some practices that have been endured for decades and shaped the way media coverage is produced. The columnist said, we're not only having discussions, we're actually having discussions about whether we should even have a crime debate. And they, the paper is reconsidering the publication of mugshots in its pages. And the columnist uh, uh, talks about how those conversations, historically, stuff like that has been used or had the potential to be weaponized against the, the people of color. And it just goes to show to me that local outlets aren't afraid to change what they do or how they operate. and to do what's best for the business and it may lose them some readers or viewers but if they think it's the right thing to do i admire that you don't really see any national outlets at least overtly like uh, so so out in the open ch changing how they operate things because it's gotten this far so why change now but I think the fact that it's being considered to be changed is very good news, and it's what BLM has been trying to do for a while. The columnist, the columnist ad, Black Lives Matter has had a profound impact on the media and dramatically shifted the paradigm of how of how people think about doing news. McNeil also took to an anchor from, uh, from NBC 12. NBC 12 is a station out of Richmond, Virginia. The anchor said that TV newsrooms and journalists have been engaging in important and and sometimes uncomfortable conversations brought on by the, the BLM. These conversations are important because it it causes us to look at ourselves as well, and and it can make the news media a little more trusted perhaps instead of being accused of, of just pushing a narrative it's important to have these uh, these conversations about blm and you know about all this stuff because it could open your eyes and make you see you know oh hey maybe i have been a little off base in my assumptions about stuff and 
it's important to work together on these things and it just seems like the national media they can't help themselves and they expose themselves a lot with how they cover things with a double standard there was a lot of talk around the time that that George Floyd happened, I'm going back to Floyd now, that he was a career cr 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 criminal and he, and that he was representative of the, of the black community. And now, obviously, we know that, we know that isn't true, but those thoughts are out there. According to Michael Rushford, who writes for Crime and Consequences, it's a legal blog. It's a legal blog. He said that when racial identity becomes the centerpiece of politics and public life in a multiracial society. He says that the assumptions about the folks who are billed as representative of a whole community, and he says that if racial oh, identity is the centerpiece, that the police are always at, are always acting out of racial, like out of racial motivation which can't be proven, I suppose. And I, th I think that's a very strong statement that when racial identity becomes the centerpiece of politics, racial identity is as strong as it's ever been right now. So is racial tension in the country. I'll be honest, yeah, the media does push it, they do, but in my experience today, everybody is so set in their ways about everything and you can't reason with anybody. And that's how we get all these protests and all violence and tension that we have in the world. And speaking of violence and tension, another way that racism shows through a lot is in this little thing called gun control. You ever notice in a mass sh 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 shoot, if the shooter is white, it's always, well, this isn't really the time to talk about gun control. And when a person of color happens to shoot somebody or shoot a few, it's always, the talk is always, a background check is required for a gun. We should have a background check. We need to outlaw guns. I'll give you an example of that. The supermarket shooting in Colorado earlier this year, 
after that, there were calls for gun control in multiple states. Colorado itself fought for multiple gun bills and gun laws. and uh, There was even a call for gun control in Pennsylvania after the shooting in Colorado. There's a double standard attached to it because it's our American right. And our American rights, the Constitution, as I learned in this during a lecture in this uh, semester, was designed primarily for white men. men. Um, Americans have a right to bear arms as long as you're a white male. And I'll give you another example. Whenever a mass crime happens, the stereotype among Americans, largely, is that it's a person of color, but a lot of the time, the people committing the mass crimes turn out to be white male, and that's just another example of a systemic or racism being being ingrained in us as a, uh, as a society and we all really have we all really have a lot of work to do to switch the narrative after the supermarket shooting according to the AP Democratic lawmakers in Colorado outlined some legislation that would create a state office dedicated to preventing gun violence and expanding the background checks and allowing the municipalities greater freedom to adopt their own gun control laws. See, there's the background check. It's that systemic thing that's ingrained in us. And I I agree with the gun control. I do. It just seems like there's a double standard as to when it's presented because it doesn't come up in every shooting. It seems to only come up in certain ones when it's not a white person doing the shooting. Gun control always comes up. The background check does not. I don't think anything perpetuates the racism on a national versus versus local level more than when a missing than when a person goes missing. There's this thing called missing white woman's syndrome, and it's basically when a a a white female goes missing and it, and it makes national news it sends everyone into hysteria because we have to find the person and it's fine we should find the person but it but every single time it seems to be a white female and it takes away from all the other missing and endangered humans on earth especially native american and indigenous 
women. There was a case here in Omaha a couple of years ago uh, of a, a lady named Kamisha Hollis. Personal color, she went missing. It took up all the news here for weeks. I covered it. And, I mean, obviously, it's it's a it's a dormant case today because because she hasn't been found yet but it just goes to show that uh, there are other missing people and the ones who are getting attention locally just aren't getting the attention nationally because they're white and i found an interesting article here at by by Helen Rosner of the New Yorker about missing white women's syndrome. She says it dates back to the first English woman who was born in America. She was born in a colony in Roanoke, Virginia, and nobody knew what happened to the colony, which meant no one knows what happened to her. And her and her going missing was sensationalized, and it has been in America ever since. Sensationalism is what sells. So, if they need to get people to watch or people to or if if the internet needs clicks uh, they will sensationalize now here and now here's an interesting study a much larger issue missing native american women are not being covered at all like it all uh, on a on a local level either that's also a problem a report from u.s news says that in 2016 the national crime information center a criminal justice database available primarily to law enforcement tallied nearly six thousand cases of missing indigenous and girls and get this only 116 of them were, were, were logged into the national missing and, identi and, and unidentified persons database 116 out of 6,000 that is less than that it's about zero that's about two percent of missing and indigenous women are even reported that needs to change on on both levels but again it goes back to the racism of the media and systemically not covering this stuff or giving it as much attention as they would if it was a white person who was who, who, who was missing and 
to f to further my argument, I think <laughs> historically, or based on what I learned over the semester, local news outlets were a lot more willing to take a chance and take a few fewer risks. I'm talking more about specifically wounded knee and how it was co covered between the Omaha B and the World Herald. Now, the Omaha the B, B the B was very pro war. B won in the war. And they were also very anti-Indian. One of their headlines after Sitting Bull was killed read, he's probably done as much Indian development in his time as any savage since Tecumseh. And the World Herald simply said who is responsible. Now, the World Herald was they not afraid to take a risk or two. They hired Suzette Flesh, who was a Native American woman, and she was out there every day on the front lines of the massacre at Wounded Knee. And she reported. She wrote a story every day, and it got put in the paper. Now, this uh, that stems back to the Civil War. The Civil War changed how everything was reported, because it was the first war where reporters were actually out there on the front lines every single day in reporting. That's a practice that still happens today, where people go live or go to or shoot stories from large events. That's a practice that's still today. And... I don't think that would have happened, I don't think this practice would have happened or taken off if a local paper didn't take the chance and try it, see if it worked. It did, and now we have a very common news practice. Well, it also helps that the Civil War was one of the most important events in our country's history. You almost had to have a reporter out there. But one of the more famous incidents of, of, of local news going against the grain a little bit was Elijah Lovejoy. He had a paper called the St. Louis Observer. And he was an abolitionist. He opposed he opposed slavery, and this was not a good thing. This was not a good idea. But back during his time, a mob attacked his his paper and his printing press and destroyed it. And he moved to to Alton, Illinois, where he was attacked again and and killed. All because he opposed slavery and didn't fall in line with what people want to hear or read. 
and I think that's very commendable. And it also shows again local papers and local reporters are willing to take a little bit of risks in their reporting. According to the Knight Foundation and Gallup, a survey was released in 2019 stating that six in ten Americans believe local news organizations are still accomplishing most of the key tasks of informing communities and local journalists are seen as as more caring trustworthy and neutral or unbiased i think a big reason for that is because local news or reports and they tell the stories that people want to hear and they don't just appease to what their audience likes to see and that's all I have on my report on why national media is more racist than the local media in their reporting. I hope I convinced you, and I hope you enjoyed the listen. So thank you.